Good morning. How are we doing? It's so good to be with you guys. Uh, yeah, man, so I'm bringing a lot of love and a lot of prayers from a bunch of churches in Oklahoma that love you guys. And I, I kind of feel like, have you ever found a band and you're like the first person to hear about them and you love them before your friends? That's how I feel about Sacred Mission Church. Like, we are so behind what you guys are doing. We love your community. Um, I found out from my mom about three months ago that my great-grandpa was actually a farmer in Iowa, which is very cool. So, man, like, it means a lot that you guys would even open your hearts and let me be here. And for the long haul, we want to get your back. you got a group of people that are praying for you, that want to support you, that want to serve you, that believe in what you're called to do in this community. So, I love you. So thankful that I get to be your friends, and I want you to... I want you to know, and I actually want all of you guys to know, that uh, anything you need, man, 24-7, middle of the night, you got brothers in Oklahoma City that would get on a plane instantly at your request to come and love and serve you and your church and your community. So thanks for letting me be here. Um, here's what we're going to do. If you got a Bible, start finding 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you're new to the Bible, the Bible is basically broken down into two big parts. We've got the Old Testament, which is where we find 1 Samuel. And the Old Testament is all about preparing the way for Jesus, the Son of God. It's about promises that meet us in our need, in our brokenness, in our sin, in our longing, in all the things that are wrong with this world. And those promises prepare the way for the coming of God's answer to the longing of creation, right? The answer to everything that's wrong and off in us and in the world is found in Jesus. The New Testament is about what Jesus came to do. It's about his teaching and his life and his ministry, his death that has the power to forgive our sins, his resurrection, which is not just a fairy tale or a, a myth. It's actually something that happened in history. Jesus came back from the dead, and that is our hope. So today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 24 through 26, and I want to take a second and pray for you guys as you're finding it. So Father, I just thank you for what you're doing in this community. Um, thank you that there are a multitude of people living in this town and in the surrounding towns that you've called this church to love and to pray for and to reach with the good news of Jesus. And uh, Lord, it's not lost on me that there's not just needs in our city, there's needs in this room that I brought in and my friends brought in today. And I pray today as we open your word that we would not be people that are just looking for more intellectual data in our brains, but I pray that we would actually realize that the living God is here in the room. And he's here to actually meet with us and be with us and help us in our brokenness and sin. So God, thank you that uh, you're not all about trying to find perfect people because there's only been one perfect person, Jesus. You're all about meeting with real people like me and my friends. And so help us. Speak with us and lead us. We pray these things in and through Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So before we dive into our text today, here, here's something that's been crazy for me in the last two years. I am a pretty self-aware guy when it comes to what's broken in my life. Like, I would even say maybe even a bit uncomfortably self-aware of what's broken in my life. Um, I have no problem with naming the ways in which I struggle with sin and shame and all kinds of brokenness. Like, I could tell you in my 20s and 30s, the ways in which my upbringing, which was pretty crazy... Um, the ways in which that upbringing shaped me to feel really unworthy. And the way that that unworthiness has led me to be a really driven guy, whether it's playing sports or it's planning churches, the ways in which I've been trying to 
earn my place in the world and justify my existence through being tough and trying to be strong and trying to be the guy that plays hurt. And I can talk about that and I can point out all these ways in which I struggle with anger because of that and shame because of that, the ways in which I have had patterns in my life of keeping people at arm's distance. But here's the thing that's crazy. If you would have asked me in my 20s and 30s if I struggled with fear, I would have said, actually, like, that's probably the one thing that I don't struggle with, right? There's all kinds of things that are messed up in my life, but fear's not just one of them. Like, the way that God's wired me is that I like to run towards things that are dangerous, maybe even ways in ways that are a bit crazy. Like, I'm not a fearful person. But here's what's starting to happen, and it's really weird and uncomfortable. I'm starting to realize that I'm actually terrified about a lot of things. During the Christmas break, I got to go with my wife up into one of our favorite places in the world, the high desert, to just do some hiking and camping and mountain biking. And uh, I'm laying next to my wife, and she's asleep, sleeping soundly. I've never acquired good sleeping skills. That's like not a spiritual gift I have. My wife, she, hits her, she puts her head on the pillow. She's out in like 30 seconds. So she's snoring next to me, and I'm wondering how can a sound like that come from such a beautiful person? <laughs> And, and here's what started happening in that cold night in that cabin. I started feeling wave after wave of just terror about the future. I started thinking about the ways in which I'm really afraid for my kids. I've got a daughter who's 18 years old, and uh, we just launched her into the world. And I'm really scared about that. I'm scared of the ways in which I've fallen short as a dad and the ways in which I haven't been enough for my kids and how that might lead them to getting gobbled up in the world. I got a 16-year-old son and I started thinking about all the things that could happen to him in the world, all the things that could take his faith. Like, he's such a tender-hearted guy. He's this weird combo of being 6'4 and really tough. He's a boxer and uh, he's just like a man's man and yet he's got this really tender heart. Like, he's really respectful to his mom and he treats women with respect. And I started thinking about, man, like, this world has a way of gobbling up soft hearts like he has. I started thinking about the things I'm afraid of when it comes to my marriage. Like, my wife and I got married way too young. We got married when we were 20. And uh, I've been with her for 22 years now. I've been with my wife longer than I've not been with my wife now. And I started thinking about, like, man, if she's taken home before me, am I even going to have the faith to survive in this world? Like, if she goes home before me, and I'm left without this woman that's been a part of my life since I was 13 years old, that's when I met her, like, am I going to be able to survive? I started thinking about just getting old. Some of you are thinking, well, you're not getting old, dude. You are clearly old already. (laughs) I started thinking about the ways in which, like, I've seen the kind of old people that I want to be, you know, like the gray heads that are tenderhearted and share their lives and they're still courageous and they're still living and they're generous and they're not cynical. And then there's the kind of older people that just get bitter with old age. And I started thinking about like, am I going to be able to weather the years that are coming? And I started thinking about how afraid I am of getting old and my body breaking and not being the kind of grandpa that I want to be that gives away love and grace but instead an old man full of regret. I started thinking about the fears I have in being a pastor in Oklahoma City. Like, I know that I consistently let people down today. I'm not Jesus, 
but I started thinking about the ways in which I could really let the church that I love and serve down. And what happened in that night is I laid in that bed, wave after wave of fear hit me, and I started realizing that in a lot of ways, the faith that I profess as a follower of Jesus is not faith that I carry into my fear, but it's often faith that I set down when I'm afraid. Because listen, when we're afraid, God seems really small and stuff in this world seems really big. It's been said that uh, there's no atheist in foxholes, right? And I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that there's a lot of professing Christians in foxholes that start to act like atheists. Because when fear gets really loud, when fear is screaming at you, God gets pushed to the edges and margin of our life and faith starts to become just this intellectual exercise in saying we believe something instead of meeting the living God in our fear to be formed by him. So here's what I want to ask you. And I know that this is church and you might be used to, like a lot of Oklahomans are, coming to church to not really do work in your soul. But one of the things I love about Sacred Mission is that this is a place for people to really be honest about where they need God. My question that I want to ask you today is, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What is it that haunts you? And I think if you could be really honest about the answer to that question, even though there'd be a lot of different fears in this room, depending on your background and your age, whether you have a lot of money or you don't have a lot of money, here's what you would find that we would all have in common. Every human being has some kind of fear about the future. All of us do. And it's actually not crazy to have fear about the future because the world has a way of breaking us. Can I get an amen from somebody? Like, we live in this world that's profoundly beautiful. It's got God's fingerprints all over it, but you can't go through this life for very long without having dreams broken and relationships broken and bodies being broken. And you never know when the next shoe is going to drop, when something that you really love or that you really need is going to be taken from you. And in all of our fragility, no matter how strong we pretend to be, what we actually realize is that despite our best efforts, we can't control our future. Can I get an amen? So here's what I want you to hear today. The journey of discipleship with Jesus whether you're a follower of Jesus and you've been walking with him for decades, or whether today you're just trying to figure out what you believe and if you can even trust Jesus, the journey of discipleship with Jesus is a journey where in the very place of your fear, in the moment where whatever it is that you're afraid of seems really big and you're tempted to think of God as really small and disengaged, in the place of your fear, Jesus wants to meet you in that very place with his presence and his power, and his love. In the place of fear, Jesus wants to form you to be the kind of person that looks like him and that can actually laugh in the face of the things that you're afraid of. And in the life of King David, this guy in the Old Testament that is a beautiful picture of Jesus, even in his brokenness and shortcomings, this guy named David who was anointed to be king is going to have three encounters with fear in chapters 24, 25, and 26. And what happens as David faces his fear, we get this beautiful picture of the people of God meeting the living God in the place of fear and fear getting flipped on its head. And instead of it being the place we get gobbled up by the world, it becomes the place that we're tested and refined by God. 
listen, the kind of testing I'm talking about is not like a pass or fail test. Do you have faith or not have faith? The kind of testing I'm talking about in David's life and in ours is the kind of older testing that means a refining and a proving and a deepening of what's beautiful in the life of faith. In these three chapters, David is confronted with overwhelming odds, and in his fear, the living God meets him and forms him to be a kind of person that looks different in the midst of the world. And what David experiences in these three chapters is actually an invitation to you and me to both followers of Jesus and people that don't yet know what they believe, to put their trust in Jesus and to actually live a life of courage in the midst of your fear. And here's the thing about faith that's crazy, man. Like, faith is a lot more like courage than we tend to admit. Courage is not the absence of fear, it's action in the face of fear. Faith is not the absence of fear, it's Godward orientation that leads to action in the midst of our Fear. So take your Bible if you would. We're going to be in chapters 24 through 26. I want to sketch out for you the way that David meets his fear and is shaped and formed by God in it. Starting in chapter 1, here's what it says When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats rocks. Okay, here's what's happening in this story. You've got this young man named David, and God has called David to be a new and different kind of king for his people Israel. At a young age, David was anointed by God to be the future king, and in David's youth, he is just rising. He is rising like a rocket in success. Everything for David is up and to the right in his teens and 20s. He has success after success after success, And then something shifts. You have this old king named Saul who doesn't love God with all of his heart. And he decides that David is a threat to his kingdom. And he starts persecuting David. And instead of David's life of unending success and favor and blessing continuing to rise, David is now literally running for his life as a fugitive. Saul wants to kill him. And David is gone from being a favored son of Israel of whom all the ladies in Israel are writing pop songs, to being a fugitive who's hiding in caves with a band of four to six hundred debtors and losers that have been joined to David in the wilderness. And now in this text, here's what's happening. David and this motley crew of ragtag debtors are hiding for their lives, and Saul, the powerful king of Israel, is bringing 3,000 of Israel's special forces to seek out David and to kill him. Now listen, the Bible is not just about cute stories that we're supposed to memorize for the sake of cuteness and being religious. The Bible invites us to actually step into the reality of what it means to be human in light of God. And what David's facing in these verses is absolute, absolute terror about his future being snuffed out. David is up against insurmountable odds that would freak out anybody. Can I get an amen? 600 losers that haven't been trained versus 3,000 of the best warriors in Israel. These are odds that are not in David's favor. 
And what I want you to get is that the writer of Samuel is telling us something about what it feels like to be a human being in this world. In this life, we're all going to face insurmountable odds. And when those odds hit you, your future feels threatened and God gets pushed to the edges. And what you're afraid of feels like it's 20 feet tall and towering over you. I got a friend in Oklahoma City who is a, a young single professional in our church. She grabbed me about six months ago. And uh, this is a really professional, put together, sharp lady. And she started crying at the end of one of our services and said, hey man, like I actually long to be married and to share my life with somebody. And I've gone from relationship to relationship. And what I've found is the guys that I'm dating actually are not the kind of men that want to commit to me and love me and cherish me. And what she started talking about was the terror she felt of being alone when what she wanted was to be married. Insurmountable odds. In this room, if we could be honest, there's all kinds of enemies that look like a threat to our future in a thousand different ways, even though we're a handful of people. What are you afraid of? Is it the pain of a marriage that's not what you wanted it to be and it feels like it's going to choke out your dreams for the future? Is it fear about your kids? Is it a diagnosis that you never saw coming from a doctor? Is it fear that you're not going to have enough to be financially stable into your future? Is it fear being alone? Is it the fear of infertility and the pain of not being able to share your love with a child when that's what you really want? Like, let's be honest. What is it that feels huge that tempts you to make God feel small? And in David's story, these insurmountable odds seem like they're going to gobble up his future, and he's about to be tempted to act like God is dead and Saul is more real than God. Pick up with me in verse 3. And when he, Saul, came to the sheepfolds by the way, there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That's a Bible euphemism for going to the bathroom. And David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. You will do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Okay, track with me. Here's what's happening. In the midst of insurmountable odds, the temptation that comes to David through his friends is, David, God's not going to come through for you in the midst of what you're scared of, so you have to take matters in your own hands. You actually have to save yourself because God's not going to meet you. You can't trust that the living God is the one telling the story of your life, David. You can't yield your future to him because God's certainly not present in this moment. So if you don't save yourself, salvation ain't coming for you. I just want to ask, like, in the midst of what you and me are afraid of, is that not the temptation that we also have? We can profess to believe that the living God is sovereign and he's telling our stories and that he's got the power through Jesus to even take the worst parts of our life and work them into something beautiful. But when the odds seem really big and really loud, God feels really quiet and really small. And we get tempted to take matters in our own hands. We get tempted to become functional atheists in the foxhole. Now, I want you to see what happens to David in this moment is so beautiful. 
He's rescued by the Spirit of the living God from being the next Saul who tries to control life as if he's God instead of trusting God with his fear and living a life of courage. Here's what happens in verse 5. David has cut off a small bit of Saul's robe, and here's the spirit of the living God in the midst of David's fear meeting him. Here's what it says. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And then David's going to speak to Saul, starting in verse 12, and you're going to hear what the Spirit of the living God has taught David in the midst of his fear. Here's what he says. To Saul, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hands will not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Hey friends, this is amazing. In the midst of David's most terrifying moment, like this moment for David is more scary even than when he faced Goliath. He's looking down the barrel at 3,000 people that want to kill him. And in the midst of this moment, David, instead of giving in to the temptation to act like God is dead and Saul is more powerful than God in this moment, here's what he says to Saul. I'm actually not going to have to fight against you on my own. God's going to decide my future. God's going to be the one that's got to judge between me and you. God's the one that's writing my story, and I can actually trust my story into the hands of the living God because he loves me. Hey, is it possible that the God that created you, the God that the Bible says has numbered the hairs of your head, the God that knows the end from the beginning Is it possible that that God who has proven his love to you by taking on flesh and being crushed in your place, is it possible that that God is actually trustworthy in the midst of your fear that you can fall back on him and believe that even in the darkest night that he loves you and he sees you? What David would say is a resounding yes to that. You don't have to be your own savior. The living God is the one that's telling your story and you can follow him. Now, in the next vignette, it's going to look totally different, but the same thing's going to happen. In chapter 25, David's future is again going to be under threat. And I just want to tell you what happens quickly because it gives us some practical answers about what to do with our fear. Here's what happens starting in... uh, Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 25. Here's what it says. And David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. This guy is making it rain, livestock. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And now the man was named Nabal, which means fool. And the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite, to which some of the ladies are saying, this sounds like my story as well. 
Now, here's what happens. This fool Nabal, who's a wealthy man, who's got all kinds of livestock, has been blessed by David in the wilderness. David has protected Nabal's shepherds from wild animals and from bandits. And in David's time of need, he sends a few of his men to respectfully ask this wealthy man, can you spare any provisions for my men in the wilderness? His men go to ask Nabal for some help, and here's what happens starting in verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? Okay, listen, this on the surface sounds totally different than chapter 24. This is not David's future being threatened by 3,000 soldiers. But listen, again, back to back, David is now facing a threat to his future. David's been promised that he's going to be king over all Israel, and now a guy that owes David respect and honor is totally disrespecting David in front of his men. David is again looking down the barrel at what God promised his life would be, and now instead of the promises seeming to be happening in the life of David, the promises seem vague, God seems really small, and this idiot Nabal seems really big. And David's response in this moment is absolute fury. David tells his men to strap on their swords. And David is again going to try to take matters in his own hands, ride to Nabal's house, and kill all the men of Nabal's household. Now, track with me. You might be thinking, well, that's different than fear. That's anger. That's a whole different sermon. And there is such a thing as good anger that God's given us as an invitation to act in the midst of the world. But isn't it possible that when you're really angry, that if you could get below the surface of that anger and really do the hard work of asking yourself what you're really feeling, isn't it possible that underneath the anger that you feel against the people that have hurt you and wronged you, isn't it possible that what you're really feeling is fear because something that you love or that you need is being threatened? Here's the crazy thing, man. I find that when I'm the most angry, if I can pause in that moment and go beneath the anger, what's really happening is I'm afraid that somebody is going to take something or withhold something that I think I desperately need for a future that's going to be a future worth living. What happens in this moment, David is again facing the temptation to act like God is just a figment of his imagination to become a functional atheist and to save himself. What happens in this story, which is really beautiful, is God comes to the rescue through a beautiful woman named Abigail. Look what happens. Abigail hears about what her husband Nabal has done, and she rides to David with a bunch of supplies. She brings wine and she brings food for David's men, And Abigail, who I have to admit, I have a huge Bible crush on, like, it's going to be so awkward when I get to heaven. I'm going to be so incredibly awkward around Abigail. She's beautiful and discerning, and in an act of almost unsurpassed courage in the Old Testament, she goes to David, who for all she knows could just be a warlord. She risked her life to rescue her household from wrath and vengeance. Abigail is a picture of Jesus. 
And what Abigail does in this moment is she invites David to have his life reoriented once again around God being big and what he's afraid of being small. And I want you to look at what she says to David and how she reorients David's perspective. Starting in verse 26, Abigail speaks like this. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives. Notice what she's saying. She's saying, hey, David, in this moment, don't be tempted to be a functional atheist that thinks that God is too small to keep his promises to you. He's not the dead God or the imaginary God. He's actually the living God. She says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hands, now then let your enemies and all those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil will not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord will be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall be slung out as of from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servants. Here's what she's saying. David, I know in this moment... Nabal seems big and God seems small. I know in this moment your future feels like it's threatened and you're tempted to save by your own hands and to control your life and to act like God doesn't see and God doesn't hear. But David, let me just remind you that the living God who is your Lord is the one that's telling your story and in the midst of your fear, you can trust him that he's gonna keep the promises that he's made to you. Hey, listen, we need to have Abigails. We need to Abigail each other in this community. We need people that will step into our fear with us and help us get our lives reoriented around the reality that because of the finished work of Jesus, there is literally nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Cancer doesn't get the last word on our story. A bad marriage doesn't get the last word on our story. A rebellious teenager can't get the last word on our story. Getting laid off from work doesn't get the last word on our story. Singleness when we want to be married or marriage when we want to be single doesn't get the last word of our story. The reality is this, because of the finished work of Jesus, if your faith is in him, there is literally nothing that can separate you from the love of God. He sees you, he holds you, and in the midst of your fear, guess what? Your fear is actually the very place where God wants to deepen you and take faith out of the realm of just data you know in your head and make faith a living reality in your heart. I said at the beginning of this talk that faith is a lot more like courage than we tend to think and admit. Faith is not the complete absence of fear. Faith is Godward orientation in the midst of our fear. 
So here's what I'd love to do. In chapter 26, which we're not going to get to today, uh, in chapter 26, we get a repeat of what happens in chapter 24. It's almost the exact same story. Saul again brings his men to destroy David. David again is tempted to take matters in his own hands. David again feels like God gets pushed to the edges. Saul is big, God is small, and God again rescues David and reminds him of his promises. Why would that happen three chapters in a row? Because the writer of Samuel is telling us this is what the life of faith for the people of God looks like. It looks like again and again and again being faced with things that feel way bigger than God and having in your community Abigails that remind you that actually Jesus is alive and he sees you and you can trust him with your story. So here's what I want to do before I pray for you. Three questions. Three questions. Question one, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What feels bigger than God in this moment? And maybe that fear feels more like anger right now. Maybe there's people that you can't forgive and let go of because they've taken something from you that you really love and you're afraid that you're not going to be able to survive without it. What are you afraid of? Question two, what is Jesus inviting you into in the midst of your fear? Here's what David says out of these three experiences. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. How does Jesus want to meet you literally today in the midst of your fear? To comfort you, to remind you of his promises, to hold you in his goodness? What's he inviting you to? And the third question, which is where the rubber meets the road, is like, what would faith-filled courage really look like in the midst of your fear? For some of us, it might be that out of loneliness, we're tempted to disobey God's commands about sexual purity. Maybe faithful courage is trusting God with our loneliness and living a life of celibacy. Maybe in the midst of our fear about our finances, we're becoming greedy and stingy and miserly, and faithful courage looks like actually opening up our hands and caring for the poor and living a life of generosity. Maybe you're afraid that God couldn't use you. Maybe you're afraid that God's done with you. Maybe faithful courage is actually saying, hey, for the time I have left, I want to be about what Jesus is doing in the world and with whatever gifts and talents I have, I'm actually going to go all in and follow Jesus. What does faithful courage look like to you? See, here's the crazy thing about this church. As God uses you and grows you, all over Story County, there are people that are in the grip of the darkness of fear that need the good news of Jesus to be brought to them, not from superhuman people that never have fear, but from fellow people who are struggling with fear that have met Jesus there. That's what it is to be a Christian. So if you would allow me, I want to pray for you. Can we take a second and bow our heads and close our eyes? There's nothing magical about bowing our heads and closing our eyes, but sometimes it helps to block out distractions Hey, Father, I pray today that where faith feels like academic mental exercises where we just believe right things about you, I pray that faith 
would actually sink into our hearts and affect our actions in the midst of fear. Hey, Lord, I want to pray for all my single friends in here and the unique fears of singleness. I pray that you would help them in this moment to hear the very words of Jesus, that you're a friend that sticks closer than a brother and you have them. I pray for my young friends in here that are looking at a future that feels scary, at an economy that feels unstable, at a world that's full of all kinds of violence and war and instability. I pray that my young friends in here would actually in this moment find the invitation of Jesus to trust them with their future. I pray for my older friends in the room. God, those of us that are even thinking about aging and retirement and even the last thing that's terrifying in this world, which is death. I pray that you would shape us to be the kind of people that in old age meet with Jesus in our fear and give our lives away in our old age in courage. And I pray that this church would be marked not by people that pretend to not have fear, that puff out their chest and play games, but I pray that this church would be marked with people who again and again and again abigailed the heck out of each other in their songs and in their prayers and in their community groups. I pray that they would keep reminding each other that actually God is bigger than whatever the threat to their future is. And his promises in Jesus are all yes to those who believe. So meet my friends and form them and keep your hand on them. And even today as we move into communion and ministry time, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith to trust you with our fear. In Jesus' name, amen.